Titles are important. They've got to be both succinct and distinct. One generic two-word title can easily be mistaken for another generic two-word title. Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct. Indecent Proposal, Consenting Adults. Of course, it's easy to tell the difference between them now. But honestly, those titles could easily have been switched and it wouldn't have altered our perception of their content. So let's do that. Let's switch movie titles. It's 1949 and Billy Wilder is putting the finishing touches on a dark drama he's been writing with Charles Brackett and D.M. Marshman Jr. But at the last minute, they changed the title of Sunset Boulevard to L.A. Confidential. It's 1958 and Ernest Lehman is writing an espionage thriller for Alfred Hitchcock. But instead of calling it North by Northwest, Hitchcock playfully retitles it Planes, Trains and Automobiles. It's 1973 and we're back in Los Angeles. A labyrinthine detective story is undergoing a major rewrite, during which screenwriter Robert Town is convinced by the film's director Roman Polanski that Chinatown should be called Eyes Wide Shut. Rome, April 1948. Director Vittorio De Sica and screenwriter Cesare Sabatini are finishing a script they've been agonising over for the past nine months. This will be their first film since Shoeshine, which, in 1946, had received an honorary Oscar, thus not only paving the way for a new category, Best Foreign Language Film, but also consolidating the importance of Italian neorealism. However, for all that international success, at home in Italy, Shoeshine was a financial failure. So De Sica and Savantini are under pressure. Their current script is adapted from a novel, Ladri di Biciclette, by Luigi Bartolini. It humorously exposes Rome's criminal underworld. But rather than going for laughter, De Sica and Savantini have shifted the tone, opting instead for a critical examination of mass unemployment, poverty and social injustice as experienced by millions of people the length and breadth of the country. So, rather than Ladri di Bicicletti, De Sica and Savatini changed the title to Persona Normale, which translates into English as Ordinary People. The film opened in Italy on November the 24th, 1948, to indifferent reviews, with one prominent politician, Giulio Andreotti, wading in to condemn De Sica for, quote, showing Italy's dirty laundry in public. But when screened abroad, the film's reputation changed, winning a BAFTA, a Golden Globe and an Oscar. However, that adulation was accompanied by confusion over its title, and there has been some debate about it ever since. Ladri di Biciclette translates into English as Bicycle Thieves, and in Britain, Germany and Sweden for example, that's exactly how it was promoted. However, in France, Spain and the United States, it was known as The Bicycle Thief. The Bicycle Thief translates into Italian as Il Ladro di Biciclette. The difference may sound pedantic, but in terms of theme and dramatic construction, it is profound. The film opens with Antonio Ricci, played by non-actor Lamberto Maggiorani, landing a job. 
Antonio is like millions of other Italian men who have been unable to find work since the end of the war. The job is small, putting up posters around the city, but in order to do that, Antonio needs a bicycle. Within minutes of his first day at work, Antonio's bike is stolen, and for the rest of the film, he goes in search of it. So, if the film were called The Bicycle Thief, we would believe there is only one thief. But there isn't. Because, by the story's end, with Antonio riven in a pit of despair, he steals another man's bike. But if the title remains Bicycle Thieves, it means that Antonio, in whom we have placed all our hope and sympathy, is also a thief. And one of many. The confusion over the film's title reflects several misunderstandings that surround Italian neorealism. Here is Martin Scorsese in 2002, introducing the film as part of a season he curated and hosted for Turner Classic Movies. These movies, made by a group of Italian filmmakers in the years following World War II, had an impact that's still being felt today. The critic, Lindsay Anderson, who later became a director, wrote about neorealism in 1948. He asked, what is it about these Italian pictures that makes the impression they create so overwhelming? Anderson answered his own question. He said the key to these films was first, their tremendous actuality, second, their honesty, and third, their passionate pleading for what we have come to term human values. No director expressed those values better than Vittorio De Sica. To me, these movies define the most precious moment in film history, when for the first time, illusion took a back seat to reality. While Scorsese was speaking poetically, the facts are a little bit different. And indeed the facts reveal the various misperceptions that have grown up around neorealism and its practices. In response to the Great Depression, Hollywood had, in the early 1930s, presented a similar argument about crime. I am a fugitive of a chain gang, the mayor from hell, the big house and the criminal code, each suggested that sometimes poverty, prejudice, corruption and exploitation were as much to blame for lawlessness as organised crime. Clearly then, these Hollywood films also favoured reality over illusion. However, there still remained two important distractions. One, they each featured stars, Paul Mooney, James Cagney, Wallace Beery and Walter Houston. And two, they were filmed within the controlled environments of Hollywood sound stages. Neorealists such as De Sica, Roberto Rossellini and Lucino Visconti sought to break free of those elements. They saw them as not only restrictive, but also reflective of a political era they were trying to escape. For more than two decades, Italy had been in the grip of Mussolini's black shirts, and during that time, he had exploited cinema as a tool to extend his idealised vision of Italy. Men were strong, women were pretty, families were Catholic, and there was no poverty. The term for such deliberately frivolous films was Telefono Bianchi. Here is Vittorio De Sica in a documentary aired on Italian television a year before his death in 1974. Right after the war, passions were so strong right after the war that they really pushed us. They forced us toward this kind of film truth. And this truth was transfigured by poetry and lyricism. It was because of its lyricism that neorealism so captured the world, because there was poetry in our reality. Beautiful for us as artists, 
but ugly for us as Italians and as men. It was a time of great passions, of important events, of situations that were extremely dramatic. Unemployment and the bicycle thief, the alienation of Umberto D, the tragedy of the children in Shushine. So the neorealists sought to overturn Mussolini's cinema. This meant filming not in the comforts of studios, but instead out in the streets. It also meant not using movie stars. Which is somewhat ironic, because during Mussolini's reign, De Sica had been a popular actor, starring in comedies such as Department Store, Triumph of Love, It Always Ends That Way, and Senior Max, all of which were examples of Telefono Bianchi. Here is screenwriter Cesare Sabatini speaking on the same documentary. Sabatini's career spans some 50 years and over 100 films, 24 of which were directed by De Sica. Neorealism represented a real revolution, a liberation, and revolutions in art always bring a change in form. That is, their expression is formal, even when their implication is moral. In the case of neorealism, there was certainly a moral liberation from what had preceded it. The excesses, the rhetoric, the conventions of a fascist era. Yet, however principled De Sica's intentions were, there are some interesting anomalies. Pay close attention to the sound and you will notice that the dialogue is frequently out of sync. This is because the non-actors were later dubbed by professional actors. By the time the talkies came to Italy, Mussolini was in complete control of the industry and seeing it as another means of propaganda, he passed a law ordering each film to be redubbed before it was released. This was a way of censoring any elements he felt would undermine his ideal image of Italy. But even though Mussolini was killed in 1945 and fascism had been defeated, the practice remained in place. Also, if you pay close attention to the pictures, you will notice that when Antonio hitches a lift in a truck to avoid the rain, De Sica filmed it inside a studio. In fact, for that entire sequence, De Sica had hired a fire brigade unit to provide the deluge. Do any of those facts detract in any way from the film's aims and its achievements? Not one iota. The emotional authenticity is still evident, which means the problems lie elsewhere. In the years since the film's release, a number of misperceptions have grown up around the movement, which means that some criticisms are often misapplied. For instance, there's a claim that neorealists shot using only natural light. That is mistaking neorealism for naturalism. The truth is that at the time, few film stocks were fast enough to film indoors, and for outdoors, most movies still used electric light. Another claim is that neorealism delivered an objective view of events, which means that subjective point of view shots are completely absent. Again, this is not true, just as is the claim that neorealism used long takes to capture events in as unmediated a way as possible. No, at the time, the long take was a luxury afforded only to big budget Hollywood productions, such as William Wyler's The Little Foxes, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane and Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. 
Finally, and perhaps most erroneously, it is widely believed that neorealism did not resort to manipulating its audience through the use of music. Just listen to the score for Bicycle Thieves by Alessandro Cicognini. These claims have been applied retroactively and are really only applicable to filmmakers influenced by the first wave of neorealism. Satyajit Rai, Ken Loach, Hector Babenko, Usman Semben, Abbas Kiarostami, each of whom refined, and thus inadvertently redefined, the movement's techniques. As a consequence, Bicycle Thieves has come in for unwarranted criticism for failing to live up to the neorealist project. In essence, it was, as Scorsese described, a moment when illusion took a backseat to reality. As such, neorealism favoured character over plot. And that focus emphasised, and thus championed, ordinary people. Superficially at least, it appears that precious little happens in Bicycle Thieves. In terms of dramatic events, you can boil it down to three sentences. A man's bike is stolen, he searches for it, and failing to find it, he attempts to steal another man's bike. And that is it. However, Bicycle Thieves is filled with such detailed nuance, and is so blithely structured, for me at least, it is one of the greatest screenplays ever written. The film nears its climax when Antonio and his son Bruno, played by yet another non-actor, Enzo Staiola, are sitting on the pavement across from the football stadium. A group of cyclists glide by, the ease of their movement seeming to mock Antonio's plight. But they have not appeared out of nowhere. They are part of the Giro d'Italia, and their presence was set up in the 15th minute of the film when we saw a poster for the annual race on Bruno's wall. Obviously, there are bicycles everywhere in the film, but many of them exist as just parts. Frames, wheels, tyres, saddles, chains and bells. It is as if the world has broken into pieces, needs to be reassembled, and each piece, however small, is crucial. The make of Antonio's bike is fides, which in Italian means faith, and that in turn hints that some sort of deus ex machina moment will come to save Antonio. His journey brings him into contact with the Catholic Church, and that journey takes place over three days, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But instead of resurrection, redemption or salvation, Antonio encounters a world that is spiritually bereft, politically corrupt and morally indifferent. A place where no good deed goes unpunished. That sounds incredibly bleak. But remember, the film was born out of the ashes of World War II, a time when for many, mere survival itself was a triumph. 1945 may sound like a long time ago, but fast forward some 70 years and we see that with ever-increasing automation, unemployment is only going to be an ever-greater reality. Likewise, with population growth, mass migration and global warming, we will have to face increased housing and food shortages. So, the world of bicycle thieves may not be that remote 